Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned, discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit Learner.co. That's Learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Nathan Beckard. He's the founder and CEO at Founder Suite. John and Greg, what are you looking forward to learning from Nathan today? Well, I'm always interested in um, in VCs and the way they look at uh, at the world. I'm interested in his journey and how he got to where he is today. Yeah, I actually had the pleasure of uh, like sitting in on one of his sessions, and you know, Nathan, Nathan was. I have a, I have a maybe, maybe unhealthy, maybe healthy skepticism <laughs> at times of people is in in the the type of work that Nathan's in, and he really struck me as a totally genuine guy and uh, very thoughtful, and um, yeah, I'm I'm keen to see what his journey has been to to get him to that place where he can win over a skeptic like me. So that'll be good. Yeah, very cool. I, I think some of the stories and experience and advice that he'll share, I've always found really useful when I've had him um, or talked to him in the past. So I'm I'm really excited to kind of dive a little bit deeper and some of his learnings along the way and uh, see what he thinks the space of the venture capital space is right now. All right. Oh, well, on with the show. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Love it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. We always have a great conversation, and I thought, let's uh, let's chat again. So maybe before we get into Founder Suite and all the other stuff that you're involved with, do you maybe want to give us a quick background on yourself and start off with where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in a little mountain town called Estes Park, Colorado, which was um, up by Rocky Mountain National Park, then moved down to Boulder, Colorado, and lived there through high school and enjoyed Boulder, which is now this super hip town that all the tech companies are moving to. Um, <laughs> and then went out to school at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley. And kind of that's where I got my start into entrepreneurship. So interesting. Walk us through your university career and how you actually got into being an entrepreneur and, and helping startups, because I think it's a really fascinating story. Yeah, well, so one of the funny little things I I talk about as I always was hustling, even as a kid, I never wanted to work like a, a regular job. Um, so I always had some hustles going on. I had pretty permissive parents and okay. I could order, they would let me order like Chinese throwing stars and nunchucks and things like that <laughs> through like Kung, Kung Fu magazine, which I would then sell to kids whose parents weren't so permissive. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember another hustle. I shouldn't say this. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I would sell hot dogs at the Colorado University CU football games. And I had a, a man on the inside who had packed the hot dogs into the box. And then I would traipse up and down the steps selling the hot dogs. And um, and he would he was he's supposed to pack in like 10 hot dogs. And then, you know, with their two or three bucks each, I'd bring back 20 bucks. But he would pack in like 14 hot dogs. And then <laughs> we'd go sell 14 hot dogs and bring, bring back the 20 bucks, whatever. And then we'd, we'd split the, uh, the, the Delta there <laughs> getting into the gray zone. So I probably shouldn't say that story too frequently, but you know, always had a hustle going on and, um, uh, you know, just wanted to kind of be my, be my own boss. And I think that obviously led to starting startups, but then after college got distracted a little, little bit going into investment banking, um, which was pretty cool too, because it was helping entrepreneurs raise capital, right? So that's where I got the taste of helping companies go public during the dot-com boom. And then I spent a little time in JP Morgan's private placement group, helping companies raise like later stage rounds. Um, that's what the private placement group does. And then went off and acted as a consultant for about a decade, helping companies raise early stage rounds, kind of took the playbook from JP Morgan and applied it to early stage Silicon Valley startups, helping them raise capital. So that was the, the little short story before launching Founder Suite. Okay. So what made you transition 
into doing your own startup as well? I, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, you know, just love the energy of entrepreneurs and startups and the chaos and the creativity and all, all the good, bad, and ugly that goes along with it. Um, when I actually went away, I skipped a part. I went away to University of Texas, Austin and got my MBA degree there. And I tried to start a startup there. We got some, uh, a license to clinical trial software coming out of MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I tried to start a startup around that, but I had no passion for or no knowledge or no real interest in clinical trial software and, and the thing failed. Um, so, you know, after that came back to Silicon Valley and just started like coming up with ideas for startups. Um, none of them were very good. And then one day just had this idea like, hey, I know how to raise capital for a company. So why not build software for raising capital? And if you remember, like, I don't know, a decade ago, Mark Andreessen, who's now a very famous venture capitalist, came out with this statement, you know, software is eating the world, um, yeah. meaning like every industry is going to be touched or or taken over by software. Right. And so that was sort of inspirational. Like, yeah, I'm, why don't I build software for raising capital? There really isn't much that exists here in this space. So that was what led me to ultimately launching Foundersuite. Interesting. So what is Foundersuite and how has it evolved since the beginning? It is today a collection of, what are we, five or six apps, five or six different products. Um, we have a database of investors. So we think about like, how do you, how does the start raise capital? We've kind of mapped tools to each step of the process, right? Step one is you build a target list of investors. So we've got a database of 208,000 investors to help you build that target list. Step two, you load them, you, you do the research, you load them all into a CRM to help manage all the activities and discussions that go on when you're raising capital. Step three, you know, we've got pitch deck hosting, investor updates and email outreach tools to really do the communications with investors as you're out there pitching and hustling and sending out, you know, a regular monthly update and sending out your pitch deck. We've got tools for that. And then as you make progress with your fundraise and get into like due diligence, that's when you're getting into our data room product. So we've got a data room where you can upload documents, create folders and put your confidential information like intellectual property or, or your product roadmap or your financials. And then you can share that with investors and you can mark who can, who can view them, who can download all that good stuff. And then last but not least, um, you know, we've got a collection of downloadable templates. Uh, these are pitch decks, term sheets, cap tables. These are things that you'll need as you get this round going. And then one last piece, once you've raised money, we've got a collection called founders market, which is just discounts on other products that you'll typically use once you raise money things like payroll and recruiting and stuff like that. So that's what it is today. Um, when we first launched to your other question, when we first launched, it was a completely different set of tools. It was actually a, a bunch of tools, you know, literally taking the name founder suite, literally, and building a bunch of tools for founders that we thought they needed, like an idea validation tool, um, we had uh, a marketing PR kind of CRM for that. We had a competitive tracker. We had an investor CRM and we had a few other things. So that was the original kind of vision of like a whole set of tools for founders, generally speaking. And it's actually funny. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now today that I dug up from the bottom of the closet. And the tagline is tools to get startup shit done. I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it, great tagline, right? I mean, it's a clever yeah. tagline. People love it, but it doesn't really mean anything, right? What does that mean? It, so we, the, the original incarnation set of tools, like was a bunch of different stuff. None of them were really that good. And it just didn't like really mean anything to people. So we really doubled down on the fundraising piece, the capital raise piece. And now our tagline is much more boring. It's software to raise capital, but it's much more descriptive. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, sure. So you always have really good learnings and, and you obviously pivoted the product. How have you learned some of this stuff? Are you like an avid book reader, listening to podcasts, trial and error, all those things? Or how do you traditionally learn? 
Yeah, probably more trial and error than I should, because I think there's great value and wisdom and learning from the mistakes of others <laughs> rather than doing it yourself. But, you know, like many founders, I'm also just stubborn. I think I know the right answer probably way more than I, I do. And I just want to do it right. Um, sure. So definitely good, healthy element of trial and error. I think podcasts are also really good, um, you know, because you can just hear it direct from the horse's mouth of how people did X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. There's whatever you're trying to achieve, sales, fundraising, you know, recruiting, there's a podcast or hundreds of podcasts for that, right? So I think podcasts are great ways to um, to learn. And then, you know, just last but not least, it's kind of old school, but I like to read the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. There's a lot of good content and it covers a, a variety of stuff. Obviously, it's not just startup focused, but um, it just gives you a good business sense of how people, even reading, here's, here's one little thing I love to do that is pretty obscure. I love reading the obituaries in the Wall Street Journal. They're covering these guys and gals who recently died, of course, but they're almost all, you know, founders of the world's largest poultry farm or whatever it is. And just hearing like the stories of how people kind of got going and the challenges they overcome, I think is really exciting. So, um, yeah, those are a few places. No, that's that's actually really fascinating. I, I found like I was always skeptical of that apple news plus but i signed up for like all that apple services and just throw like just comes bundled in there and i've actually been reading more and more of like the wall street journal and some of these kind of traditional uh news sources just because like you're right like they have these really good it's like really good i find i don't know maybe yeah. it's just I, I i i'm praying that they that their business model is working for them because i feel like it is one of the last and there's a couple places out there I'd, I'd kind of put new york times la times washington yeah. post i mean there's a handful of of them in that same general category where they have real staff writers um who go deep on topics and they spend weeks months investigating topics and going deep right which you just don't get on blogs or medium posts you know you you might have great medium posts but they don't have the luxury of going deep like true authentic reporters do so i, I hope the kind of traditional media model <laughs> survives because it, it's got that deep reporting which is so valuable no 100 so this is kind of a related question what have you learned in your kind of personal life out or outside of business that you've been able to apply back into your business life oh it's great question you know I think just kind of taking, I mean, I think back to like when I was in my twenties and trying to hatch businesses, I tried to do another startup that was doing like web design in the late nineties when the internet was just blowing up and that didn't take off. And, you know, I think where I'm going with this is having kind of a longer term perspective to your, to your business and to your kind of life and knowing that, you know, the, the overall, if you kind of take a, a 50,000 foot view or take a step back and look at your trajectory, you know, hopefully the graph is going in the up to the right direction. But if you zoom in on it, right, there's going to be all these ups and downs in that line. <laughs> yep. and even pretty dramatic, right? When you zoom in and, and, but I think my younger self took every little setback or every little, um, hiccup and bump in the road or, or, you know, whatever, just super personal. And, and the stress level of course was more than needed to be. So I think you're kind of taking that like zoom out look from time to time and like, all right, are we going in the overall right direction is the business, you know, it might have a bad week, bad month, but overall, is it like going in the right direction? Are we growing Are customers generally getting happier over time, even though in the moment, someone's angry at me because they can't, you know, send out their investor update or something like that. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say kind of that, that bigger perspective, which is hard sometimes to, to get. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into advice for founders at any stage raising money, because well, obviously you built a tool around this. You consulted a bunch on this. I would consider you a subject matter expert in this space. 
Thanks. Well, I hope so by now. If I'm not, then I'm I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's the question? Just was some some good advice for founders? Yeah. Yeah, I think you know things I I always knew or learned, you know, kind of from the investment banking days, and then more recent learnings. I'll I'll talk about too. Sure. Things I sort of always knew. Um that I maybe learned in investment banking are the importance of really putting in the time to build and qualify a good list of investors. So I think a lot of founders kind of skip this step or they shortchange this step. And I think we, I always talk about fundraising as a sales process. You're basically building a pipeline of investor targets and you're engaging with them and you're ultimately trying to drive all these investor targets towards a a close towards a yes or a no. And that's very similar to how, you know, B2B salespeople conduct their business. But something that really good salespeople do is they spend a lot of time researching their targets, prioritizing them, qualifying them, making sure their targets are good fits for them, and really focusing their time and energy on, you know, the targets or prospects that are the best fit. And so I think that's something that founders can do a better job of. A lot of founders have never raised capital before and they just want to download a list and start blasting, you know, emails out to that list. And I tell them that's not the right way to do it. You know, better to spend the time to create a shorter list, maybe instead of 500, it's 300 or 200 or even a hundred of really highly qualified investor targets. They're actually, if you do that homework and put in that time and identify the right people that invest in your sector, your, your stage, your geographic preference, all that good stuff, they're actually going to be eager to hear from you. Whereas if you're doing poorly qualified outreach to investors, you're just going to get flagged as spam or people are going to get upset with you, right? So that's something I've always known. I'd say the other thing I've kind of learned the importance of more and more over time is of building relationships. Even though this is a sales process and it's somewhat transactional, you're also, you're not just selling a product, you're actually forming a relationship with investors that's probably going to last five to eight years or sometimes longer. And, you know, the the sooner you can initiate this relationship building process, even I like to tell founders six to 12 months before you plan to raise money, the better. Um, when you can reach out to investors, get them familiar with what you're doing, start updating them. Uh, this is where I'm always pushing our investor update product to, to our customers, like send out a, a company update once a month or whenever there's news to investors that you're nurturing these relationships with. And then by the time you're actually ready to raise capital six months later or 12 months later, they've followed along with your journey. They've seen you make progress. They've seen you overcome roadblocks. They've seen you get some press. They've seen you have an ability to, to grow the team, to recruit people, whatever it is, they've seen progress be made. They're going to be a lot more comfortable writing a check. And, and that takes some foresight, right? Because you kind of have to start that relationship building process way in advance. Whereas a lot of founders like, I need money yesterday. Let me start right. spamming investors. <laughs> sure. But yeah. then how do you, or what advice do you give to people to actually start those opening conversations with investors when you're not looking for money and you just want to start sending them updates. Yeah. So it's, and this is another thing that I think is so beautiful about this approach is it's much more of a soft sell or a soft ask. And let me give you an example. If, if I've identified you as an investor in my space and I just come barreling at you saying, here's my pitch, here's our business plan. Here's our data room. Do you want to invest? You know, you're kind of getting rushed to the altar, right? But if I, instead I come at you and I say, Hey, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while. I know you've, you've done some pretty interesting deals in our space. Here's what we're doing. I'm solving the pain of, you know, raising capital through software, et cetera. Um, I'm not raising money right now, but I would love to add you to our company update distribution list. We write a one page company update, super short. Um, we send it out once a month. I would love to add you to our list. So you get an early peek at what we're, what we're building here. And, you know, you get early access or, or a sneak peek, right? 
and that's really plain to investors like FOMO, right? Investors make money by identifying companies before other investors do <laughs> and getting into those companies. So you're, you're tapping it. And it's a very low, low bar for the ask. I'm simply asking your permission to send you a, a one page update once a month. That's all I'm asking from you. And investors are often inclined to say yes to that. Whereas again, bum rushing you with my pitch deck and a, a 40 page business plan, you know, and, and trying to get you to make a decision in a week or two weeks is just a, a poor way to do it in many cases. No, I, I think that's, that's really good advice. So I'm curious, what other things do you see maybe founders do all the time that they probably shouldn't do, or you haven't seen worked as well as maybe it should that you, you tell people to not do so much? Yeah. So we've covered a couple of the big ones, you know, going out with a spray and pray approach, not doing your research, not curating and qualifying your list. I'd say also this is sounds obvious, but it's probably one of the top five reasons I see startups fail is their pitch is just really confusing and bad and cluttered. And they, it's hard to build your own pitch deck, I find, right? Because you've been thinking yeah. about this problem for maybe five years, 10 years, who knows, right? You have maybe domain experience from working in the space. And I find that people make these dense, complicated pitch decks that investors, on the other hand, the audience you're creating this deck for, they all have ADD. They have very short attention spans and they want to be able to flip through something on their iPhone in like 40 seconds or less. And so there's sort of a mismatch between the material you're putting out for your pitch and the audience uh, expectations. So having just, you know, so turn that around, how do you make that better? Just having a really crystal clear, super simple, almost minimalist pitch deck that um, just covers the story arc in a really simple, clear way. And then you can get, you know, you unpeel the the layers of the onion later with that investor and all the, the nitty gritty about your business, but just having something super simple. I'd say um, one of the key thing that a lot of founders maybe screw up on is they just never get momentum going for their deal. I always talk about how there's such a correlation between your speed at fundraising and your your tempo and your momentum and the likelihood you are to get funded. And founders, you know, it, they, they're busy, right? They're building product. They're hustling with customers and sales and all the other stuff that founders do. Fundraising is often a, a big distraction and time sink. And so they don't really put in the time necessary to get momentum going. And then, you know, two months turns into four months, turns into six months, eight months. And the deal starts to just kind of get stale. I see this with quite a few. And investors can sense that immediately. They can smell when a, a deal does not have momentum or worse when it's kind of gotten stale, right? So that's that's key. If you're going to fundraise, you've got to carve off, carve things off your plate, clear your plate so you can kind of go all in on fundraising for you know a couple months. And that's sometimes hard for founders to do. Okay, but... When you say momentum, what does that mean to you? And what do you tell founders that should mean to them? Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great question. That can mean different things depending on the stage of your fundraise. So in the early days, you could probably put out, I could, this would be a great graph, right? Kind of a timeline of what does momentum mean at different stages. In the early stages, in it means how many meetings are you having? So I do this funding hacks talk and, uh, one of the things I say is like, you should, investors are always going to ask you, how's the round coming together? And that's their way of probing, does this thing have momentum or not? And to the extent you can answer that question with something like, uh, it's coming together pretty good. We just started fundraising last week. I've got 10 meetings set up this week. I've got 12 pitch meetings set up next week. Um, we're trying to run a pretty tight process here. We've got our data room set up already, um, hoping to collect uh, first indications of interest or term sheets by, um, you know, a month from now, and then to close this out three weeks after that, something like that. That's signaling that you're, you're really running this pretty professionally, that you've got interest because investors are taking meetings with you, right? You're packing. There was a great... Um, podcast guest we had on our podcast not too long ago who talked about calendar density 
how many meetings do you have packed on each week, right? You want to build calendar density. Now that's in the early days. As you progress, you can replace how many meetings you have scheduled with something like, uh, it's going pretty well. We're about halfway through. I'm expecting four term sheets this week. And I think I've got two more coming in next week. Or you can say something like, you know, it's going pretty well. We're in diligence with six VC firms. Uh, I've got soft commitments from, you know, another three who are looking for a lead investor. Whatever it is, you can kind of map it out on your stage, right? Whether you're in diligence, whether you're getting term sheets or or so on for so so on and so forth. And that's what momentum is, right? Interest sure. from other parties. You you mentioned something that I want to dive a little bit deeper on because I, I think what you said is really good advice, but you said something about you give them a deadline, which I think most founders won't do because they're yeah. scared to basically say, oh, in a month or whatever, right? Yeah, I should clarify that because I actually don't think you give a deadline. Like, okay. But I think giving what you're aiming for, like we are aiming to get our first term sheets by the end of the month. Because I think the, the risk of an actual deadline is that deadline comes and goes and you don't have a, a term sheet by that point. And then the other investors are like, um, you know, I thought you were going to have a term sheet, but now what do those other investors know that I don't know? And they can get cold feet from that, right? So I wouldn't actually have a hard dates and deadlines, but kind of signaling that you're having, um, uh, that you have a, a game plan, right? You're trying to get, all your first round pitch meetings done in the weeks one through three and then, you know, second round weeks three, four, and five, and then, you know, first set of term sheets in by week six or seven, something like that. I've seen one other way to kind of create deadlines a little bit. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the company. It was a life science kind of a biotech life science uh, founder we had on our, our podcast and she had a panel. So this is pretty scientific stuff they're doing. She had a, a panel of like scientific advisors. These are, you know, high profile PhDs that were advising the company. And she told all the investors, like, we're going to run two, um, two sessions with our scientific advisors. So if you have any questions about the technology, the science behind this, uh, we're going to do two sessions and one session is on, you know, whatever, uh, March 11th and the next one's March 18th. Um, and, you know, we want all interested investors to attend one of these sessions. And so they were kind of forcing the hand like here. So it was, you know, if investors were interested, they had to sign up for one of those two sessions. Basically, I thought it was kind of an interesting way of like creating some decision process in the, in the cycle without actually forcing investors to commit to a term sheet, right? They had to kind of commit to one of these sessions or be out of the process. I thought it was kind of clever. It, it, did it work though? Well, yeah, it did. It, it, okay. It did. It worked. And she, you know, maybe there's some survivorship bias there because it worked for her. Maybe this wouldn't work for others, <laughs> but, but I thought it was kind of interesting, right? She was valuing these advisors time because these are high profile people and, and just kind of forcing investors to S or get off the pot, you know, on one of these two dates. And um, I thought it was good. So No, it, it, that's interesting advice because I think, especially in, in that case where you actually need maybe like somebody that really knows the science to sit down, they and they're probably really busy. Like I get investors are busy too, but it's kind of playing the, they're both sides are busy. So you need to make one of these work or you're probably not going to be able to invest in this anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. Okay. It's, so it's also just discovering who is serious about the company, who is seriously interested and who is just kicking tires. A lot of investors will kick tires and kind of, I don't want to say string you along, but they'll kind of, you know, they won't say no, but they're, they're not really saying yes either. So um, if you can't make one of these sessions, I've given you plenty of notice, advance notice on it. You know, you're probably not serious. I thought that was kind of interesting. Interesting. Is there advice for that you've seen work where investors are kind of a little bit on the fence still to maybe get them to pick a side? You know, this is a good question too, because it's like, 
it's sort of those you sort of know when you have momentum things start to just move fast and investors start to react faster but there's a lot of a lot of startups get kind of caught in the no man's land or <laughs> you know okay. where they don't really have momentum yet they don't have the leverage the negotiating leverage to kind of force a timeline and i think the only real remedy there is to keep filling your pipeline keep doing the research keep getting you know intros and outreach to additional investors to keep your pipeline full basically right keep filling the pipeline um and you know hopefully uh finding some investors that are believers one of the great things i heard from another founder on our our podcast one time is that he described it as fundraising is like the search for believers in other words you're not trying to convince you're not trying to convince investors of your worthiness, but you're just trying to find people who kind of already believe or who are seeking, you know, your thesis. I thought it was really interesting. Right. And so sure, it kind of, it's almost analogous to, you just have to kiss enough <laughs> frog <laughs> to find, uh, to find the, the prince. That sounds weird, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I know what you mean. And I think that's it. So if you're, if you don't have momentum yet, you just got to keep filling your pipeline researching investors getting the intros to them and just keep setting up meetings and driving more down your pipe how what do you what advice do you give for people getting uh to getting those actual intros though yes good question this is another place where i think a lot of founders get stuck um you know if you've in a perfect world you've paid it forward, you've paid your dues, you've networked your way in your industry, and you have a lot of good relationships that you can then lean on for intros, right? And yeah, sometimes this is just tapping your own personal network, or sometimes it's mapping out how you're connected to investors through LinkedIn, um, you know, trying to, to find the one, two, sometimes even third degree connections to the target investor that you can lean on for an intro. Um, the other little hack that I talk about, if you don't have a, a strong network to start with, or sometimes we get people who've moved here from Australia or Lithuania or whatever, and they just don't have a network, you know, already. Uh, the hack is to find the target investor, look at what they've invested in the last six months to a year, um, reach out cold to those, some of those founders that the investor has invested in and get a dialogue going with them. And it can be a very kind of simple, Hey, I'm, I see so-and-so investor invested in you. I'd love to just hop on a quick zoom. I've been following her for a long time and I'm really interested in, you know, what she's doing and how she's been involved in your startup. Can we just have a quick zoom to you know, poke, pick your brain a little about this and you get a dialogue going with those founders that the investor invested in. It's okay to ask that founder for the intro. And that's a pretty good like back channel way of getting those intros. Founders are pretty good about helping other founders and that investor, you know, knows and trusts that founder. So it's a really good way of getting an intro if you don't have a, a network already. Oh, that's, that's really good advice. So you host a podcast and you mentioned it a few times uh, throughout the show so far. So what is it called and what types of people do you have on it? Yeah, thanks for the plug opportunity. Um, it's called How I Raised It, and it's simply interviews with founders who raised capital. And um, we've actually expanded it a little bit. So now we've also got some VCs on there and how they raise like their funds. We've got a family officer, fund of funds on there a little bit. Um, but really, it's just goes deep into how XYZ founder raised capital for their startup. And we we talk a little bit about what the, the business does and then get into the actual tactics. And believe it or not, you know, I kind of thought I knew everything about fundraising. There are so many ways people fundraise that it just boggles my mind. I mean, they all many of them have a common thread, like some of the things we've already talked about, building those relationships in advance, doing the research, all that good stuff. But there's also a lot of just variance in how people have uh, raised capital. It's pretty interesting. Can, can you give us a couple quick examples? Yeah. Like, so 
there, I, I love that biotech story of the woman who had the really good process and used her advisory team to create some deadlines. So I thought that was kind of cool. We had another guy on not too long ago who worked, I'm trying to remember the exact tactics here, but he basically worked the angel group network or this, you know, angel group circuits. I mean, there are a couple hundred angel groups, probably even in the thousands around the world. Even here in Silicon Valley, there's like Sandhill Angels, there's Band of Angels, there's like Life Science Angels, right? There's all these different angel groups. Koretsu Forum has chapters all over the place. So there's all these angel groups all over the place. And a lot of the format of these angel groups is they'll have startups apply. Um, they usually like the startups to get referred in. And, um, and then the startups go through a screening process and they pitch to all the members. And then the members can decide to invest or not. So this guy would go on, I think it was Gust, and find like the uh, a couple people on the senior team at each angel group. And then he would go, um, like, I'm trying to remember exact details. He would LinkedIn friend one or two of them and say, hey, um, I'm interested in pitching the group. And they, and they would usually say, oh, here's the, the URL to apply. And then he would go back to that and say, X, Y, Z referred him, you know, uh, <laughs> it was art. slightly a little bit, you know, in that gray zone of, of whatever, but it worked, it worked. And it often, you know, was enough to get him nudged above like the cold applicants because he was name dropping that someone, you know, from the angel group who he connected with on LinkedIn was referring them. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It, it is interesting that you say that because I've had a similar experience before where I'm connected with somebody on LinkedIn, but I've never actually even talked to them or exchanged messages with them. And somebody would say, hey, you know, so-and-so from this company, can we chat? And it's like, sure. And sometimes it's been like to their benefit. Sometimes it's been to my benefit. And it's it's interesting just how like, yes, we're connected like yeah. in that kind of weird gray area. It's kind of it's worked for me before. So I think that's actually really smart. That's good. I know LinkedIn's funny. It's I used to be super careful in like cultivating my connections and I would only accept invites from people I kind of really truly knew or had had actual meetings with. And now it's just kind of becoming, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. like you or like many people, yeah. I think I probably don't really know at least half of my LinkedIn network anymore. You know, I would say I probably know like a quarter maybe a tenth <laughs> yeah yep. i was the person that was adding people early on and i was like oh this might be useful down the road and it's been useful i would say um yeah. so I, i'm curious and you always have some funny and maybe not so funny stories about kind of the failures the highs and lows of actually running a startup and i think you're a great person to give some perspective on that space and you kind of mentioned it earlier with the the chart and you know, stressing out about kind of some really low points. Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus, it's funny that we're having this conversation right now because I've mentioned this before I call, you know, here's a low point. Like I have almost all the entire engineering team in Ukraine. And wow. as we're recording this, Ukraine is being bombed by Russia. <laughs> I would have never guessed in a million years that one of the many risks of my startup is going to be Putin invading Ukraine, right? Like hundred percent. Yeah. Who can forecast that of all the things that can go wrong with your startup. Um, and, and even the fact that I have all these Ukrainian engineers wasn't by design. It, I just kind of fell into it. And there's, we, you know, we, I'll tell you a little story behind that. Like we actually, sure. uh, maybe it was in our second year, we raised some money and then we spent that money rebuilding the platform and had a mix of like United States and some Polish and some Australian engineering team. But then we basically kind of ran out of money for a little while. And for even a couple months, this is like four years ago or something, five years ago, we had basically no engineering team. And yet we still had a little bit of subscription revenue flowing and it was very slowly growing. Um, but yeah, I remember like kind of flying, it's almost like flying without a parachute or something or, or jumping without a parachute where we had no engineering team. 
for a few months. And then finally, like, okay, I think we have enough saved up where I can actually hire like a part-time engineer, but I'm really strict or, you know, restricted on, on what I can afford. And that's what led me to hiring like my first Ukrainian engineer. And then they turned out to be so darn good, so hardworking that I just kept adding more to the Ukrainian team. Never intentionally set out to build a Ukrainian development team, but they're just awesome. And Great. and here we are, you know, in 2022, where Russia is trying to take over Ukraine. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, what, what do you do though? What do you do? Right? It's like I don't know. No, I uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it's good. We'll have to see how that plays out, right? In the next uh, few weeks or months or well, hopefully days, it's sorted out. But I don't think so. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess the only lesson, maybe, if if you can take a lesson away from this, is like, if you if you can afford it, spread your, you know, critical systems like engineering around a little bit. You know, have some some U.S., some Irish, some Ukraine, some India, and whatever it may be, right? Just so you're not dependent on any one territory i guess i don't know no that's fair well and i also think it gives different perspectives the more people you have from different parts of the world right that's true yeah yeah so how i guess like how is your team doing in in ukraine like have you talked to them or are you just kind of we we messenger constantly yeah and it's crazy they're sending me pictures i mean they're all doing pretty well knock on wood um but they're like huddled down in the basement with like jars of pickled food <laughs> oh, wow. preparing for a long time, you know, hold out if needed. Um, I'm sure they're making the best of it. They've got strong spirits, but uh, I'm sure it's also very stressful. They can hear, they can hear air sirens and things like that. Right. So just imagine trying to get your work done or one of my top engineers has a I think she's like three or four year old. Imagine soothing your four year old as the air sirens are going off. Like it's tough, but they're all doing pretty good as we speak. Knock on wood. Yeah. I don't know how I would handle that. So yeah. Um, but I'm curious, what other advice do you give people though to pull through some of these challenging situations? Because a lot of people, this is when they quit their startup, even if they have a bunch of momentum and things to be, can seem to be going well or have had a startup for a number of years. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the answer almost goes back to before you even launch a startup. Okay. Pick something that you just absolutely love. Like I, you know, like I told you, I tried to start a clinical trial software startup. I had no real interest in that. I was bored by, by it. I didn't want to go to clinical trial software conferences and present our, you know, I mean, I wasn't into it in any way, shape or form. Um, whereas I'm really into helping startups raise capital. I mean, it's really fun for me. And I like, I've probably read a thousand blog posts about raising capital and all the white combinator, Paul Graham posts and everything. Right. And I still find it interesting. I mean, my medium, my inbox from medium, you know, there's a daily, like synopsis of a bunch of articles it's mostly venture capital or or startup related stuff and i still find interest in this you know five years later um so basically you got to pick something you're really pretty passionate about because it is going to be hard you need that that passion to carry you through the dark days through the hard times and even just you need that passion so you don't get bored a year or two into it because most startups do take several years to really get going you know no, I, I think that's really good advice. Is there anything else that you see founders maybe do all the time that you see doesn't work that they should stop doing? Oh, man, that's a good question. Or um, do more of? I do more of. Let's, let's, take, let's take that one. I think when in doubt... When, when you're in doubt of what you should either be focusing on or spending your time on, you know, go back to talking to customers, right? That is okay. always like a good fallback plan when you're in doubt of what you should be working on next or, or building or even just, you know, getting to know customers um, just is so valuable. And 
kind of the mistake I made in those early days, I told you about like sort of our original product suite that Founder yeah. Suite was. It was a mess. It was a bunch of stuff I had no real interest in. I don't know anything about PR and marketing. So why am I building a CRM trying to solve that? And, you know, I didn't talk to customers enough on what they wanted or what they really cared about. Um, and it wasn't until we kind of zeroed in on the fundraising piece and then really engaged with our customers on that, um, that we really got into it. And now it's great because you start to build, you know, relationships again, it all goes back to relationships. You start to build relationships with customers who are giving you good feedback. They're taking meaningful time out of their day to write you notes or whatever it is. I was just down in Palm Springs last week and I got to meet one of our customers and we went out for drinks and, you know, it's a guy I've never met before. We've mostly interacted on our customer support chat line, but he's always given me great feedback or another example, we're going to South by Southwest, like in a week or so. And another customer who I've never met before is going to pick me up at the airport. We're going to go out to dinner, you know, just getting to know people. Yeah. It's so cool. Right. I mean, these are just people I've kind of gotten to know through our app. Right. <laughs> but they're, getting to know them face to face and getting that like good feedback, like those relationships just pay it, pay off in spades. So, you know, yeah. Interesting. So are you the one initiating these meetups? Are your customers a bit of both or, or how, how does that come to be? Oh gosh. It's a bit of both to be honest. Like we do okay. one of the little, it's almost like in and out Burger where you have all these like off the menu things you can order. One of our little off the menu things is for our, our gold customers um, who are, you know, paid subscribers. We'll do like a free 30 minute pitch deck review where we just kind of wow. have them pitch their, their deck and we'll give feedback. But, you know, we're on zoom for half an hour kind of talking about their business. And, and that's a great way to kind of get to know someone a little bit more. Um, yeah, it kind of just comes in various ways, you know? <laughs> no, I, I think that's actually fascinating. And then that's actually really good advice that you do that, right? And that you, do you actually sit on some customer support emails or chat? Like, do you do that sometimes? <laughs> uh, okay, that's another thing. I sit on a ton of customer support chat. And I probably, given where we're at now, probably should not do as much, but I still think there's a lot of value in it because I'm hearing direct from the horse's mouth. You know, a lot of, a lot of it could be just like outsourced um, probably to a, uh, a lower person or even, you know, a third party, some of the customer support, but a lot of it is just really, you're hearing where people are stuck or struggling or where, where they're confused. And I think that's really valuable to have that direct line of communication. So you know, eventually you have to put in those layers between you and the customer. I think just as companies scale, that becomes necessary. But I think the longer you can hold out and still talk to customers, do some customer support, you know, you hear some startups that even some of the senior engineers have to spend whatever, two hours a month answering direct customer support inquiries, just so they're still in touch with the ultimate end user. I think that's really valuable. No, I think that's really good advice. And people also love if they're talking to the founder and CEO, right? Yeah, it's funny. Mm -hmm. it, it, here's a funny thing about that. Sometimes you'll have someone coming on and they're kind of in like abrasive, hostile mode. Okay. And they're they're just like bullies, kind of like, you know, I don't know, this is, this is crap. I want, you know, I want my money back. Like, they're just bullies. And then somehow they connect the dots that maybe they're talking to me, founder, which doesn't really mean much. I'm just another guy, but like, then their tone totally changes. <laughs> they become like nice and like, Oh, you know, it's, it's total change. So, which makes you feel a little bit bad for full-time customer support people. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. No, I always try to be super nice to them because I know it's not their fault, but yes, I I've had that experience too. Like, but yeah, yeah. no, very cool. But Nathan, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about Founder Suite, the podcast, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. So Founder Suite is simply www.f-o-u-n-d-e-r-s-u-i-t-e, Founder Suite, all one word. There is a free version of the software that you can play around with. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but people have actually raised capital just using the free version. So check that out. And then um, 
I'm Nathan Beckard on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you, but maybe just mention you heard about it on uh, on Kevin's show or just so, um, you know, I know where you're coming from. And then the last thing I would plug were, you know, Twitter forward slash founder suite, Facebook forward slash founder suite. But we have this podcast I've mentioned a little bit called How I Raised It. And um, you can find that on Spotify, on iTunes, SoundCloud, also on YouTube. We have a pretty strong and growing YouTube channel. Just search for Founder Suite and you'll see all our videos there. Lots of good stuff. Not only interviews with founders on how they raise capital and some VCs, but also some of our, our kind of special episodes, things like pitch deck hacks or funding hacks and just stuff like that that go into some real tactical stuff. So check those out. The Founder Suite blog also has a lot of really good content too that I've been, you know, uh, looking at and referencing and I think is also worth mentioning. Yeah, that, thank you. Blog.foundersuite.com. Check that out. Perfect, Nathan. Well, I really appreciate you again taking the time to uh, chat with me and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Always, always fun. Um, appreciate it. Over and out. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Well, John and Greg, what did you guys think of that? Well, that was a great interview all around. Uh, first of all, he had some great advice and insights into into fundraising and from from both sides, uh, from the yeah. from the, uh, the the companies trying to fundraise and then from the from the other side, the investor side, and then just his um, his unique struggles right now with having uh, <laughs> wow. engineers in the Ukraine uh, when he did mentioned that earlier before we started the show i i didn't realize i thought he was just talking about another company but uh <laughs> i didn't realize that until until we till he you asked he started talking about that in the show yeah the the perils of startups uh, man that's a rough one i feel for for him and the, and the, the engineers that he's working with that is stressful time that's serious stuff uh, hope um they, hope they stay safe we really yeah, hope don't... everybody's okay yeah um well, and I'm surprised they're still working. Like that in itself is, you know. Nathan's yeah. a great guy. This was a really cool interview and so happy to have him on the show. Thank you for tuning in to the learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app or want to get in touch, please visit learner with two L's at www.learner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.